Hello, welcome to the Revive for the Journey podcast, where we give you this week's message from Cove Church. We pray that it blesses you and helps you grow deeper in your journey with Christ. Enjoy. Well, hello, Cove Church. So great to be with you today. And uh, this weekend, as you've already experienced, we start the Advent season. And we are going to finish our love theory series in the place that Advent begins, with hope. Uh, Hope in the promises of God for a future that we have yet to experience. And as you know, that kind of hope can be a bit hard to find in our time because everywhere you look, someone is speaking of a catastrophe, of a breakdown, of a dramatic downward turn. Now, I'm not attempting to minimize the validity of those factors. I would only say that they don't include all of the data because I hold to the promise that we find in the book of Romans reminding me that in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him. All things. If you look up all in the original language, it means all. In everything, God is working for the good of those who love him. So we can then approach our future in a very different way. See, fear and faith have a lot in common. They both deal with what has not yet happened. But fear approaches that unknown from the posture of God's absence, what God won't do, what God can't do. But faith approaches that unknown from the posture of God's presence, what God will do, what God can do. So, God invites us to approach our future, not just seeing all the brokenness of the world, but adding to that brokenness a belief in the one who overcomes the world. It's it's like this. When explorers first went to Australia, they found a mammal that laid eggs, and it also spent some time in water, some time on land. It had a broad, flat tail, webbed feet, and a bill a little bit similar to a duck. Upon their return to England, they told the crowds gathered of this amazing discovery, and the crowd's reaction was to believe it was all a hoax. You guys made that up. That doesn't exist. So the explorers returned to Australia. And they found the pelt of that very animal, and they took it back to England. And upon seeing this undeniable proof, the people once again responded unanimously, saying, we still believe it's a hoax. You made it up. Now, we today know of the existence of that animal and that it is true. We know it as the platypus. Yet this story reminds us that belief does not only hinge upon what is true, but on the decision to believe that truth. This is the quest of faith. Will I live a life that believes God to always be moving and shaping towards a good future and a hope? Or will the uncertainty of my future lead me to live a life of fear and worry, and anxiety in the present. Will I believe God for a great next story? 
the question we will ask today is the question God is always asking. What do you believe about me? So we're going to look at a passage from the book of Acts where Paul asks a group of people that very same question. And from this interaction, we will identify some incredibly important things that God is inviting each of us to believe. Things that determine our part in the next story that God is writing. And the first thing I'd point out is this. God's next story lightens the darkness. It lightens the darkness. Let's read it together. Acts chapter 17, starting verse 22. Big voices right where you are. Go. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Part of the road to believing God includes the removal of our own ignorance. It's, it's adding God's light to our darkness. Uh, here's an example. As an unchurched kid growing up, my only reference points to God were anything but accurate about who God was. I heard the name Jesus quite a bit in my household, but it was always like on the backside of an injury, or it was as an exclamation to understand the severity of my blunder. Okay? In fact, there were seasons I thought Jesus Christ was my nickname. <laughs> now, I, I suppose some of that could be seen as an intentional slight against God. But I would say in my family, it was simply ignorance. Culture made Jesus a swear word, so that's how his name was used in my world. But all of us in my family eventually realized that culture was wrong in that, when we were ignorant about God. And so God has continued to reveal in my life where I'm missing his truth in the years since, and God will continue to do that. But Paul tells folks in this passage, you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. You don't know who it is that you revere. You worship the idea of worship with no reference to who or what you are worshiping. You don't have a clue of who it is that you lift up as deity. And amongst the thousands of gods that were spoken of in Athens at that time, Paul tells them, you build an altar to the God you don't know. And masterfully, Paul says, that's the God I'm going to tell you about. See, they didn't know what they didn't know. And they desperately needed enlightenment. And the same is true for us. See, for those in Athens, deep down, when they looked at all the marble statues arrayed in gold leaf, they knew this wasn't real. They knew they built those gods. They were not yet sure what was real, but somehow amidst all of their efforts, they knew they had to acknowledge the God they didn't build and perhaps make room to acknowledge the God who built them. They were looking, but they did not yet see. Now, a little context. This place in Athens that Paul was having this discussion, as we read, it's called the Areopagus. The best way to describe it was like a spiritual food court. Okay, in a mall, spiritual food court, 
It's where you went to hear all the latest and greatest ideas on religion and philosophy, and all of the experts of the day would evaluate what they heard. So it's into that context that Paul begins to bring his comments, and basically Paul turns on the light begins to remove the ignorance that was keeping them in the dark. Now that's important for them, but it's also very important for us. Here's why. We change nothing until we realize something is wrong. I, uh, as a kid, I had an eye doctor. His name was Dr. Proctor. Isn't that a great name for a doctor? Uh, Dr. Proctor, nice man. And as with many professionals in Redmond at the time, he was, yes, a full-time optometrist, but he was also a part-time cowboy, okay? Full-time optometrist, part-time cowboy. Now, I didn't see him that often. He was an eye doctor, and so, you know, it, it wasn't like I was there all the time. But I remember going to see him one day and him bringing that big thing, those two circles over in front of me and I'm looking in the lenses, is one better or two better? Number one, number two, doing that whole thing that, that eye doctors do. And I noticed as he's doing this, this bandage wrapped around one of his hands that's covering two or three of his fingers and the, I could tell the fingers were stubs. And I can't remember if I asked about it or if he just saw me staring. But he said in his cowboy way, he said, yep, I was working with a really green horse and I made the mistake of letting the coil of my rope wrap around my hand. The horse reared back and my fingers went with it. If my eyes were not big before, they were at that moment. And from that moment, whether it was a rope that I was holding or an extension cord or dental floss, I never let it wrap around my fingers because I knew at any moment I could just fly off if something happened. I had a heightened sense of the truth of what could happen to me from that point forward. See, the truth for us is this. When I know more, I change more. Revelation should always lead to transformation. And that's always what God wants to do in our lives, to bring about revelation so we can be transformed, to dispel the darkness that all of us, to some degree, find ourselves wandering around in. We are told that God is light, and in him is no darkness. And so it's only by seeing God that we can see at all. So the belief for us, then, is to understand that God is longing to turn the light on, to do so with us just as he was doing with the people of Athens, to show us where we're missing it and reveal to us a new path because we don't know what we don't know. It's true for everything. It's true for our relationships. It's true for our work. It's true for our reactions, for our addictions, for our societal views. Jesus wants to show us where we have been living in the dark. And it's there that Jesus wants to invite us to his glorious light. So as you consider the story God is writing in the future, know that God's next story always lightens the darkness. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. God's next story counters the counterfeits. Let's continue the passage, Acts 17, starting in verse 24. Big voices, go. 
The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations and that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So here's what may seem crazy at first. In Athens, they thought they could build a statue, and when it, uh, when it was done, they could proclaim that statue to be God. And then they would build a house for that God. They called it a temple. And the proof of this was in view because right over Paul's right shoulder up the hill was the Parthenon, the house built for the goddess Athena. We look at that and we say, well, isn't that crazy? That people would do that, that they would operate like that, that they would make a God out of anything that wasn't God. They were idol worshipers, such primitives. Good thing we don't do that anymore. <laughs> or do we? I know folks whose God is their car. I know folks whose God is their fitness. I know folks whose God is their sports team. God is their kids. God is their hobby. Others, their God is their intellect, their business acumen. For some, their God is their own image. Selfie time, click. Still others whose God is their political conviction, maybe their traditions. I even know folks whose God is their highly disciplined devotional life. We make gods out of relationships, gods out of vocations, gods out of our cause, and gods out of the hurts we refuse to let go. Oh, like Athens, we are a city full of gods. And those friends are the counterfeits. So what do we do about that? Well, the way you reveal a counterfeit is by getting well acquainted with the real thing. I could perhaps paint you a picture of the Mona Lisa. And I could take it to you and say, this is the real Mona Lisa. And perhaps I'm a good enough salesman and there's a, enough trust in our relationship that you would believe me. Uh, it would probably require some sort of vision disability as well, but let's say you believed me. Okay, that's the Mona Lisa. But what if we then actually took my painting to the Louvre Museum in Paris and set it up right next to the real Mona Lisa? I think you would probably notice some differences, starting with Mona Lisa's not a stick figure, which is all I can draw. You would, in that moment, see the truth. Why? Because of this. A counterfeit loses its power in the presence of that which is authentic. So how do we defeat the idols that we know so well in our own lives? We defeat that which is false by standing it up right next to that which is true. We get close to the real thing. We get close to Jesus. And here's, but here's the sad truth. 
Too often, we know our idols far better than we know our God. And even if you have walked with Jesus for 80 years, I don't have to tell you, there is so much more of Jesus to know. And these folks, they, they were seen, but they couldn't know because their, their worship was given to the workmanship, not to the workmen, to created things, not to the creator. And Paul is saying, there is a God you can know, a true God you can know, not the God you made, but the God who made you. That's where God wants to take all of us. Will we believe it? Will we stand at... at up the, the gods of this world right next to Christ. Because if we do so, we'll realize, oh, they're lifeless. In the midst of a society that is overwhelmed with half-truths and spin, could, could we seek with whole hearts the one who is truth? This is what Jesus, I, I believe, is doing in these days. He's showing who he really is amidst all of the wind and the waves. Would we, would we believe the one true God? Could we believe that in a world ever devolving into lies and chaos, that the truth of God will shine all the more? Because God's next story counters the counterfeits. It's the second thing here's the last thing. God's next story redeems the lost. Let's finish the passage, Acts 17, starting verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the, the, the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. What we believe matters for this reason. It determines what we're holding on the day we stand before God. Here's what I mean. The last thing I want to do is stand before God whenever that day comes and tell God all about what I did. Saying, God, here's what's in my hands. Here's all of my accomplishments. That's the last thing I want to do. Now, why is that? Well, first, because I know even the good things I did could have been done with a wrong motive. Second, I know that for every good thing I did in my life, I've done five things at least that were not good. And the last thing is, then, last thing that I would want to do when I meet God is to stand before God and point to what I did. My accomplishments will be painfully deficient. So what can I do in that moment? How can I prepare? Here's what I can do. I can, in that moment, stand before God and point to what Jesus did. And the only testimony that matters before God on that day is to say, God, here's what your son did for me. 
Here's what your son did in my life. Jesus loved me. Jesus died for me. Jesus intercedes for me today. I don't point to my accomplishments. I point to the accomplishments of Christ. This passage tells us that we will be judged by the one God appointed, and that is the one God raised from the dead. The one we will stand before is Jesus. So we then have to determine who Jesus is to us. We have to determine what what my relationship with Jesus is going to be. That's the invitation that Paul puts in front of those in Athens and each and every one of us. Inviting us to a belief in Jesus that restores a relationship with the God who loves us. And the amazing thing is that even in this crazy world of ancient Athens amidst its statues and its myths, Still we see here there were those that believed amidst a broken world. They still saw God and were met by God. They saw the glimpses of the divine in the midst of that broken world. And that's what we get to see too. You know, we we see the glimpses of the divine here. We we see it in in so many different ways. We see it in puppies, (laughs) in grandkids, and Yellowstone Park and white sand beaches. These are the reminders to us that God is good. Now we also see the reminders of sin and the fall and the brokenness of our planet. I think mosquitoes are a product of the fall. I don't know. I can't prove that, but I think I'd put them there. Maybe nutria, you know, giant rats with red eyes and red teeth. I'd put them kind of in the fall category. Of course, kale. Kale would be in the fall category. It's the devil's cabbage. We all know that. That's why there's a fruit of the Spirit. There's the fruit of the Spirit, not the vegetables of the Spirit, because kale just wouldn't make the cut. So I, I think we know these things, but this is all theory. But our world is always a blend of, of the redemptive things of God and the destructive impact of sin. And so we get to choose uh, what and who will we believe? How will we see our future? And God is always calling us to believe for a future where we see God do more than we can ask or imagine. Where the lost are redeemed and we're included in that. God always calls us to see the world as an optimist, not because the world is so good, but because God is so much greater. And God calls us to introduce the world to the Redeemer. And here's the thing, that happens most powerfully when Jesus is given permission to fully redeem us. It's there that your life with God can actually be an inspiration to those who right now are living without God. Those who would say, I'm I'm not religious or I'm not big on spiritual stuff or I'm not really a church person. We know all the replies, yet God in your life can actually help others see differently. You are part of their future story with God. That's certainly how it was for me. I know that's how it was for many of you because of this. Our first glimpse of God is often seen through the life of a friend. God wants to inspire others by letting them see his work in you. So, 
my encouragement. Let him do the work. And let others see, because God is drawing many to himself in these days. Believe it. Believe that God's next story redeems the lost. I'll wrap up with this. Um, when I first began traveling more, as I kind of grew up and my roles changed, requiring me to get on planes and that sort of thing, I remember in first doing that, I, I was kind of scared of planes. I, I, I was never really comfortable flying. In fact, I would often grip the handles as I'm flying. Every bump, I'd grip them tighter, you know, and, and, and I was just really on edge when I would fly. And it, it, was, it was almost exhausting to have to go that way. And eventually, and I'm thankful for this, I think God gave me the grace, um, I, I just had to start approaching it differently. And I'd tell myself a couple of things as I sat down on those seats in the plane. I'd say, number one, turbulence is just like a bumpy road. You know, that's just part of bumpy air. It's just like a bumpy road. It doesn't mean that we're going down. Uh, second, I'd tell myself the odds of being in a plane crash are mathematically way more improbable than just getting in a car crash. So, so I'd tell myself that. Maybe scared of cars, but that's a whole other story. Um, but then third, I'd tell myself this. If we do go down, if we do crash, heaven is an upgrade. And that was enough. Armed with those three outlooks, planes for me are no problem. But I had to change the way I approached my future. And it really boiled down to choosing one of these two paths, faith or fear. That's the choice we're left with when we consider the story that God is writing next. And God wants more than anything for us to approach our future with faith because the God who loves us is already in the future. He's already there. We have this tendency to make following Jesus so complicated. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it can be simple. Jesus said in John 6 this, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. Our work is to believe. If you're trying to answer the question of what is God asking me to do, how am I to, to approach my uncertain future, here it is. Believe in Jesus. The work is to believe. And as you believe, you'll see that God wants to invite you to his next great story where God lightens the darkness and counters the counterfeits and redeems the lost. But it all starts with the question that God is asking you today. Amidst everything you are walking through, will you believe? Because the God who holds the future wants to hold you. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. To stay connected with all things Cove Church, visit our website, covechurchpnw.com or on all social media platforms at Cove Church PNW. We'll see you next time.